Welcome back to Air Power and International Security. I hope you're enjoying the series so far. In today's show, we're going to be taking a closer look at the status and use of cyber operations in international law. We are going to find out when cyber became an important consideration of international lawmakers, how far legislation can actually regulate cyber activity, and what all of that means for states wanting to employ offensive cyber capabilities. I think this is a really important subject if you want to begin to understand what cyber operations and what cyber warfare might look like and what it might entail in the future. So I sent my colleague Dr Claire Stevens to talk to Dr Heather Harrison-Dinnis who works at the Swedish Defence University based in Stockholm, Sweden. Heather literally wrote the book on this particular subject. It was called Cyber War and Laws of War and was published with Cambridge University Press in 2012. She has also worked with and advised the Swedish government on a variety of issues including autonomous weapon systems and cyber operations to name a few. And so I'm delighted she agreed to come on the show and I'm really looking forward to hearing what she has to say. So now it's over to Claire. Thank you very much for joining us today, Heather. Um, I wanted to start with something that you wrote in a recent article um, where you said that while some systems and networks, such as military communications networks, command and control systems and similar, comfortably fall within the established definition of legitimate targets for military cyber operations, cyber operations and the cyber environment in general raise unique challenges for the application of definitions of military objects and laws. So I thought I would start by asking, what are cyber operations and what laws apply? Oh, well, that's a great question, Claire. I mean, what we're talking about is the use of data streams, so ones and zeros, bits and, and bytes, to affect a military um, a, a military target of, of some point. Um, so, so we're talking about the same types of laws that your listeners will have studied before. It's, it's all to do with the law of armed conflict, but how we apply it within the cyber environment. And the cyber environment is a bit more difficult in that a lot of the times the damage that you're going to be causing is not physical damage. You're not going to see things blow up like we might expect if you drop a missile on something. And a lot of the time, the things that you want to attack are things that are used by both military and civilian. They're what we sort of call in the common vernacular dual use targets. Um, but obviously, under the law of armed conflict, there's no such thing as a dual use object. Something is either a military objective or it's a civilian object, and, um, and it can't be both at the same time. So, so cyber sort of increases, um, increases the number of those that are in the environment that you might want to affect. Okay, so that's really interesting. So there is still some sense in which we're working out how the laws apply. Despite this, it seems that we see um, headlines or news about these kinds of capabilities being used quite a lot these days. So why might cyber warfare capabilities be an attractive tool for military leaders or, and for their political leaders too? Well, there are kind of two parts to that question. Um, one, or the, to, to answer the last part first, perhaps, um, why is it useful? It allows, um, it, it allows political leaders to 
um, increase their options in responding to states under international law. So the law of countermeasures, for example, one can, one can affect targets within another state, send a message stop a, to stop a particular behavior that is breaching international law without engaging in forceful measures, um, without, um, without sort of escalating beyond, um, beyond a particular realm. Um, for military leaders, it's a very useful tool. I mean, we saw with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, one of the very first things that happened was an attack against satellite communications that were being used by the military. So as Russian tanks rolled over the border, there was a cyber operation that took down the KASAT, um, which was being used by the Ukrainian military and disrupted, um, according to, to international news reports, um, disrupted the communications between, um, between military commanders on the ground for, for Ukraine. So they were left scrambling, trying to, trying to arrange their defense. So it provides sort of a, an add-on ability to our normal kinetic, um, kinetic uses of, of, of military force. The first part of your question is an interesting one. And you talked about, we're seeing a lot more discussion about cyber warfare in the media and, and other places. We have to be a little bit careful when we see cyber warfare used in the media. It's very easy for journalists and bloggers and, and anyone else to slap cyber on the front of something to make it look cool. Um, what we're talking about here is, what, what you and I are talking about here is, is the use of cyber military operations. We're talking about um, the use of cyber operations in support of military operations as a precursor to military operations, sometimes on their own, but always with that sort of nexus, that idea of, of armed conflict or of politics by other means, if you want to, if you want to sort of go back to the history books. Um, so, so that's what we're talking about there. When you see cyber warfare used in the media, it's used for all sorts of things that we simply don't classify as related to or having a nexus to armed conflict. It might be um, cyber criminality. You know, it might be ransomware attacks against businesses trying to get uh, trying to get money. It might be um, uh, denial of service attacks against um, against other systems. It might even be website defacements. I've actually seen um, a news report that called cyber called something cyber warfare, where someone had simply put um, a flag on a map uh, over, over disputed territory. But it was just you know Joe Blog's person, not not a state, not a government. They just put just put a, a flag um, on on a on a mapping program commonly available on the internet. Um, so, uh, you know, we need to be a little bit careful when we see newspaper headlines screaming cyber warfare, because they're quite um, loose with the term, shall we say, um, and, and not using it in the specific way that, um, that you and I would use it and, and that members of the RAF would, would be used to thinking about warfare or armed conflict. Yeah, that's really interesting. It reminds me of something I, um, read recently that actually the, the very fact that they're not kinetic, that these kinds of military operations offer options short of a kinetic effect can actually make them a more appealing or more operationally effective option um, in the sense that it's, you know, it's, it can be temporary, it can um, be um, dialed back, it can send signals without necessarily escalating as high as an armed or kinetic attack, which is actually quite an interesting point. Thinking then more specifically about the relationship between offensive cyber operations and international law, 
what are the laws and guidelines that currently apply? Um, how far have debates resolved around when and how it's right to use these capabilities? And how confident are we in those conclusions? Well, the debates are still very much um, happening. States have been slow out of the gates to provide their opinions um, as to what amounts to, say, a use of force. Um, when we're talking about cyber operations, what amounts to an armed attack. Uh, plenty of us academics have, have um, written pieces that, that attempt to sort of cast some light on that. But at the end of the day, it's states that make international law, not academics, however, uh, however much we might, uh, might try. Um, so, so there are plenty of debates still ongoing. Um, there are debates about um, where that line of use of force is, for example, Article 2.4 of the UN Charter prohibits the use of force in international relations. We know uh, from judgments of the International Court of Justice in the nuclear weapons case that it doesn't matter what the weapon is to do that, one can still have a use of force or an armed attack. Um, so, so we know that it should apply to cyber as well, but where that line is, we don't know. Um, and that's also the case for, um, for kinetic uses of force and that we have some guidance from the ICJ as to what will and what will not amount to a use of force. So for example, um, mere supply of funds we know is not enough. So if you're funneling uh, money to a hacker group, then that's not going to be enough to, to count as, as a use of force. Um, but we also know that arming and equipping an armed group that is engaging in, in violent actions or actions that would amount to a use of force is enough for a state um, to be conducting a use of force. So we can see cyber equivalents of that. One of the interesting questions, though, is about economic coercion. So a few people have sort of raised the idea of, well, what about if you hack the New York Stock Exchange and cause that to crash and there's mass panic and, um, and a run on, on the banks and, and all sorts of things? Um, in the past, in the negotiations for the UN Charter, and again, when the Declaration on Friendly Relations was being drafted 25 years after the UN Charter, this idea of economic coercion and, and whether or not it could amount to a use of force was raised. And each time the international community has said, no, economic coercion is not enough. Neither is political coercion, um, by the way, unless it um, reaches a different level. Um, so this idea of, of an attack that only causes economic damage has kind of been excluded by the international community in, um, in the past. We're now starting to see it being brought up again, saying, well, what if it's this big event? What if it's not um, economic sanctions, economic coercion in some other way that's sort of a slow grind of, um, of causing an effect, but a fast moving um, instant sort of effect-based thing. That is very unsettled. Um, I think there are many states who would not uh, be comfortable with that, say, well, we've already discussed this, we've already excluded economic coercion. Um, it's the, and, and it's the same thing with political coercion as well. That's also been excluded by the international community. The interesting thing there is that, that it's primarily about how international law works. So as you'll be aware, international law is, is a horizontal system. It's a system between equals. So, so the law is made and, and followed and enforced by the same, you know, by the same states. And all states are, are um, under the law at least, considered equal um, by, the, by the notion of sovereign equality. So the problem that you've got is if you start classifying economic coercion and political coercion as 
uses of force that are prohibited, you're then taking away one of the major enforcement mechanisms of international law, and you're left with, with nothing really um, to, uh, to use in, in shaping state behavior. Uh, and that, that state behavior has to be shaped by other states because there isn't this international police force that can come in and, and sort everything out. Um, so so th there is a sort of hesitancy to, to move towards um, outlawing those things. And, and one scholar sort of put it, well, if you outlaw that, then you're outlawing diplomacy, essentially. Um, so um, so there, there is this big debate about where these levels are. One of the other debates that has been um, that has been sort of coming up, and, and the UK has taken a somewhat unique approach in, um, in international law when it comes to things that are not amounting to intervention in, in the domestic affairs of a state, but still fall, um, still create an effect on, on another state. And that's the question of sovereignty um, and whether or not one can have a violation of territorial sovereignty as a breach in and of itself of international law. Um, the UK's position so far has been sovereignty is an important principle. It underlies a lot of other things in international law, like the prohibition on the use of force, like the prohibition on interference in domestic affairs, but it is not a rule in and of itself that can be violated. Other states are taking the position that in fact it is a rule of international law that one can violate merely by, um, by interfering with, with equipment, um, or infrastructure, computer systems on the territory of another state. So, um, so this is an interesting discussion that's been taking place, not just in academia, but also between different states with, with the UK coming out with, um, with its position and other states sort of reacting against it and saying, well, we're not so sure about, about that. So France, for example, has said, we believe there is a thing as violation of sovereignty. Um, so, um, so there's interesting debates there. So the answer to your question about how confident are we in these conclusions, unfortunately, is well, not really. Um, we're still waiting on states for, for more state practice, for, um, for cases to be brought, for states to say, yes, we believe this is a violation of, um, of this right, or, or to take countermeasures in response to an incident. Um, so that we can sort of point to, okay, this is what um, this is what international law is developing into. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, in one respect, um, international humanitarian law and you know international law is providing some really useful frameworks for helping us to think through these new means, these new tools available to states. But at the same time that we're still working it out, that we're still figuring it out, and I guess it's worth emphasising that, of course, international law isn't a stable fixed thing it is also changing and evolving with precedents with practice with with states coming to agreements sometimes ad hoc on what is okay and what is not okay so it's a it is an interesting field to be studying right now i suspect absolutely absolutely and and the thing about it is that while states all say yes these are the rules and yes they should all apply to cyberspace the devil is always in the detail well how should they apply to cyberspace how should they be interpreted and because cyber evolves so quickly, then that's, you know, it's constantly changing. I guess the next question um, then is that cyber operations during an armed conflict are covered by the existing laws of armed conflict, as we've already discussed. And that means that they should abide by the principles of necessity, distinction, proportionality and unnecessary suffering. 
But as we've already hinted at, much cyber activity takes place below this threshold, not during armed hostilities between states and not always necessarily by state employed actors, for example. So given that context, what do you think are the prospects for regulating offensive cyber activity? Is there the potential for formal treaties and agreements? Um, or are we talking more about the gradual development of norms of responsible state behaviour? Um, I mean, my thought on the matter is that that we're not going to get agreement on a treaty. Um, I think we're, we're in the realm of, of developing norms and there are certainly two processes in play at the moment um, at the United Nations that are trying to do that. Um, there are numerous academic processes that have happened around, um, around it as well, trying to bring some clarity. And, and we are starting to see states react um, to, the, to those academic debates, to, to the debates that are happening within the UN processes. Um, so, so I think we are going to see more norm development rather than a treaty coming out of it. Um, the, the thing about certainly the Geneva Conventions, the additional protocols, is that they're drafted in very technologically neutral language. So you mentioned the principle of distinction, for example. Um, you know, that's drafted in a, in a very technologically neutral way. It says that you know, states should direct their operations against military objectives and, and that civilian um, persons and, and objects should be protected. Well, it doesn't matter whether, whether you're attacking them with, with bombs or, or with bits, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make a difference. A civilian object is still a civilian object and must be protected. A military objective is a military objective, and it can be and it can be attacked whether you're attacking it with um, with uh, mortar or whether you're attacking it with um, with a bit string. So it's you know it, the language of of the rules that we're dealing with is is technologically neutral anyway. In terms of those below the threshold operations, then I think we can. We can look at the norm development by states. There are treaties out there already. So, um, so the Budapest Cybercrime Convention, for example, deals with those criminal um, operations that we're not really talking about today, but is, is dealing with those sorts of things. Uh, and then it's just state practice. You know, if, if states are the victim of, of cyber operations, then we start to see states naming and shaming other states. Um, we've seen indictments issued by by the U.S. against against state hackers from um, from Russia, from China. You know, calling out people and and naming them as members of the intelligence services of that state. So we're seeing state practice evolving all the time. Yeah, I think that's a great point because it's worth emphasising that just because a state experiences a significant cyber incident doesn't mean they have to respond in like kind. They don't have to necessarily respond with cyber means to a cyber attack. They can respond with indictments and diplomacy and sanctions and other means. So, it, you know, it's worth recognising that these sort of new operations or operations in a, in a new domain, perhaps, actually fit in with quite a long history of state behaviours. It's, it's almost like it's one extra lever that a state actor can pull in that regard. Exactly, exactly. So I guess we've talked about offensive cyber operations, but what can we do about managing risks from non-state actors or incidents that do not rise to the level of armed attack or you know, don't happen strictly in warfare? Yeah, I mean, the main thing that, that we can do is build resilience in our networks. Um, 
the problem with um, with cyber is that if you are the defenders, you're always on the back foot. Um, so, you know, a, an attacker only needs to find one way in. A defender has to find all the potential ways in and block them. Um, so it's 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 always going to be um, a game where where you are um, starting off if you're defending your networks on on the back foot slightly. Um, and I think one just has to to recognize that it's really not a matter of if someone gets into your network, but when and how you're going to deal with that. Obviously, you're going to try and prevent them getting into your network. I'm not suggesting that. Um, but I think um, but I think in terms of those who are tasked with defending those networks, it's a matter of building resiliency into that network. For, for all the rest of us, it's a matter of practicing good cyber hygiene, of, of making sure that we check who is sending us emails um, and, and ensuring that we don't click on suspicious links. So just to, to be aware that, that there are people out there who are trying to get into networks and particularly if you work for an organization that is of interest to other people, um, to just be aware of that and to, um, to not, not click on links and, and open things and practice just good cyber hygiene, update your computer systems, apply patches, all of, all of the usual things that, that your IT department um, tells you to do and you go, oh yeah, yeah, I'll do it later. Um, you know, check your passwords that you're not using password as your password on six different devices, those sorts of things. I think that's a really nice point actually, because when we're talking about this stuff, it almost feels like it's really high tech and really esoteric and a bit unfamiliar, but actually what we're talking about is really quite mundane stuff. But this is the reason that we're talking about this in this context is actually cyber isn't just about the exotic cyber operations. It's also about recognizing that we're each of us almost acting like the front line of, you know, the organization's defense or our, even our own personal defense. So that's quite an interesting way of just flipping it a little and just putting it into context, I think. Yeah, and I think I think the thing to remember is that, um, you know, you might think, oh, well, I'm, I'm not an important person, but your computer connects to a network that is connected to another network. And you need to think that, you know, it's not a matter of what they can do from your computer, it's where they can move from your computer within that network. Um, so to just bear that in mind and, you know, don't don't pick up a USB stick off the floor that someone's dropped in the bathroom and think, oh, I'll plug it in and see who it belongs to. That's how the US military was breached, by the way. So, you know, it does happen. Um, OK, so the final question, then, I guess, is a bit broader again. Given the risks involved in developing and deploying these types of capabilities, we've just talked about some of the individual or, you know, organisational risks, but, you know, even bigger risks. Um, what do you think needs to happen to improve public understanding of offensive cyber operations? Are we at risk of getting sidetracked by concerns about cyber Pearl Harbors, for example, you know, the headlines and things like that? I think, well, I think that's always a risk because, you know, a cyber Pearl Harbor makes, makes um, a better headline than don't plug in a USB stick that you found on the floor of the bathroom. Um, but, but I think, one of the things to do is to talk about cyber incidents that we're seeing in a way that the public can, um, can grab hold of. I think there is a risk for those of us who work in this area to use a lot of jargon, um, a lot of three-letter acronyms, and, um, and not sort of point out what the real world, world consequences of some of these things are. Um, so um, I, I think, 
what we can do is talk about it in in sort of plain English um, and in a way that explains the interconnectedness of, of everything. You know, it, it, it might be a, a good headline that, you know, oh, your fridge is, is hacking into Russian military assets or something like that, um, which, you know, simply isn't true. Your, your fridge might be co-opted in a DDoS attack, but it's not, you know, a, to, to put it in, in plain, clear language about what is actually happening um, and, and to sort of explain the consequences of that and the fact that all of us um, have a responsibility in, in terms of securing our devices and, and um, things like that to, to try and ask the right questions and to get people involved, to realize it's not gonna be big explosions. It's not gonna be the Hollywood version of it. It's going to be you know, sort of this, this quiet version that actually does, does cause a lot of harm and destruction but maybe doesn't make for such a great headline. And that reminds me of something I often like to, to talk to students about, which is that it's all very well us thinking about cybersecurity risks as one of the, you know, the greatest risks facing the UK. But the thing you've got to think about is when it comes to our adversaries or opponents, have they got the capability, the opportunity and the intent? They might have the ability and they might have you know, the opportunities to take advantage of any vulnerabilities, but why would they want to do that? You know, what are the broader strategic aims? And I think that helps keep some of this in perspective a bit, that it's not going to be necessarily a massive, you know, end of day cyber attack, because that might not actually support the overall political or strategic objectives of our opponents. So it's worth just remembering, is it all three at once? That's right. Brilliant. Thank you very much. That was a really interesting um, discussion and it's really great to get that sense that this is not totally new that we have got you know really good international agreements and frameworks in place for thinking through some of these issues even whilst perhaps recognizing that yes yeah, some of it is a work in progress but thank you very much for your your thoughts and the, the chat today it was great you're very welcome thank you for having me Fascinating stuff there. Not unsurprisingly, I guess, the international community has struggled to come to some sort of agreement about how to regulate and legislate against various offensive ways in which the cyber domain can be exploited. But it is encouraging to know that states are creating a set of norms as they begin to probe the boundaries between what is and what isn't acceptable behaviour. Excellent. Thanks again to Heather for taking part and to Claire for asking such thought-provoking questions. Next up, I'll be talking with Colonel Ronan Ellis about his time in US Army Space Command during what has often been termed the first space war. If you'd like to stay up to date with the series, do make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it from me. See you next time for another Air Power and International Security podcast.